Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Well, as I mentioned, my name is Brian, and uh, wasn't that cool? Wasn't that awesome? You guys, oh, I'm more clapping. I like that. I like it. I like it. Um, you know, one of the cool things that we love here at Anchor is it, there's, it's, when there's a family that's dedicating a child here, it's like, almost like they're saying, this is an environment that I trust, and this is an environment that I want to commit to, and I think is, is a healthy environment for my kid. So it feels like such a beautiful thing every time, just even from my angle, being able to uh, be a part of those child dedications. Well, we are in this teaching series called uh, Future People, which is a teaching series through Revelation, and we are getting into it today. So if this is your first time at church, welcome. Put on your seatbelt. Hopefully you came with one of those this morning. Um, And uh, by starting, though, we're going to get into Revelation chapter 12 in a little bit. But by starting into it, I just want to ask one question that you may have not asked verbally, but no doubt has been on your mind, and it is this. What is reality? What is reality? Now, you might be thinking like, wait, what? Like, I know what reality is. I can get in my car and drive, and if I go through a red light, that presents some challenging uh, opportunities and situations for reality. I know what reality is, but think about it. Like, you know, I mean, right now, we live in a weird, contorted, contrived, curated vision and version of reality. Like, just think about like this. You know, maybe you've heard of the metaverse. You guys heard of the metaverse? Okay, some people may be nodding but uh, unwilling to raise your hand. We can engage, guys. We can engage. Have we heard of the metaverse, anybody? All right. So I was talking about the metaverse, uh, you know, mentioning this in the first gathering. And the lobby, somebody came up to me afterwards. He goes, well, I worked on Facebook for the metaverse. And I was like, oh, did I mention, did I describe it perfectly? And he goes, yeah, it was fine. You know, and then, (laughs) all right, all right. I got a passing grade there, I guess. But, you know, the metaverse is like this alternate digital reality that exists in the landscape of pixels, right? And recently, there was a guy who... uh, Uh, caught the attention of some journalists because he bought a house in the metaverse. Um, And he paid a a sizable sum for this house, $500,000 for this digital house that exists in the metaverse. Um, And it happened to be worth so much because it was next to Snoop's house, Snoop Dogg's house. So paid $500,000 to live adjacent to Snoop in a virtual reality. And I couldn't help but think like, you know, like oftentimes I'll call my dad still before big purchases um, and ask ask him, you know, what do you think about this idea? Is this a wise purchase? And I could not imagine calling my dad and asking that question. Hey, dad, I'm going to possibly, you know, get a mortgage. No, but not for an actual house. It just is a digital. No, no, hear me out, dad, but it's next to Snoop's house, you know. Um, so good idea, right? No, probably my dad was have some words. But like, this is a vision of reality is that like something like that is somehow worth $500,000 in some people's eyes. Again, curated, contrived, and confusing visions of what reality is. But not only that, we have other layers of this, whereas like the 30-year-old phenomenon called reality TV, which is far from reality, let's be honest. The director's intent for reality TV is to exploit the existing tensions within the reality cast so that everybody in those offshoot scenes can say, well, I'm not here to make friends, the classic cliche line because that's the thing that drives viewing. And so if we can create and curate tension, then all of a sudden we have more people viewing it, which means it's not really reality because we're just focusing in on certain aspects to the exclusion of other aspects. 
And then there's other things, just like the questioning of truth, everything from the disbelief in objective reality or objective truth to the idea of there are alternative facts. And we live in a landscape where we can question truth, but if we run a stop sign, we still probably will get a ticket. And so there's this world that is like marked by, there's still objective reality because you know I'm crossing through a, a red light or I'm going through a stop sign and I'm gonna get a ticket. There's like, we're not, we can't like question the judge and be like, well, my version of truth is different from yours. That's just not how it works. If I bump into a wall, that's actual objective reality I'm bumping into, but still we actually question if there is actual truth. And so all of these layers come together to, cult, to bring to this question of like, wait, what is reality? This past Christmas, my son put on his cousin's VR headset. Do you know what I'm talking about? VR headsets. You've watched some of those YouTube videos where kids, like people like fall down because they're immersed in this other reality and they are unaware of the actual reality. Well, this is the situation that happened for my son. If you're unfamiliar with these, watch the YouTube videos. They're a little funny. You are laughing at someone else's expense. So I guess you might have to repent or something after that. Um, but uh, they're funny. And this is what happened with my son. Uh, he put on his cousin's uh, VR headset at Christmas and he's been asking for one, by the way, ever since. We've been holding out. So pray for us that we hold fast to our conviction. So he put this on and he's like waving his arms around, like moving his body, fighting some enemies that exist in kind of the virtual reality. And he's bumping into coffee tables and couches. So he's like fighting things that aren't there and he's bumping into things that are there because he has this VR headset on. And then there was this thing that's still in my mind. He takes the VR headset off and like he has to do like a full 360 to get himself back into reality because he was so immersed in this virtual reality. Now, Revelation 12 is a little bit like taking that VR headset off and getting a glimpse of God's reality. Being able to really take off the curated and contrived and confused reality and to immerse ourselves into God's reality. As I mentioned before, it is this pulling the curtain back on what we see and to understand that there is more at play. So I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 all the way to, uh, to 9. But before I get there, um, if you've been with us and you know that we're doing this Revelation teaching series, um, you know that we ended in Revelation 5 this week and we're in Revelation 12 this week. So it means we are skipping over a sum, but we don't want to skip over it. So I want to actually invite you, if you're wanting to probe deeper into this, buy this book. And I didn't write it, so it's not a, it's not a self-promotion, I promise, and I get no profits from it, but it's a, a guy named Daryl Johnson. He's a professor and pastor who actually I had the opportunity to learn from while working on my master's degree, and he wrote a book called Discipleship on the Edge, and it is the best book for helping all of us get our understanding around this confusing book called Revelation. Pick it up. It is worth the time, but for us, we're trying to spend like the time looking at really the highlights and the main, like, the main uh, focal points and thematic units of this book. So we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 12, what some called the theological center of the entire book of Revelation. And admittedly, it reads like a summer blockbuster or Lord of the Rings reboot. So this is going to be fun. Again, put on your seatbelt. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. 
She was pregnant and cried out in pain. And as she was about to give birth, then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child. And the moment he was born, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Wow, who is ready to dive into this one? Again, might feel like that Lord of the Rings reboot, but you could say it is the original. It's, this is the original version. I mentioned that this is like, um, you know, in a world of contrived curated reality, this is what I'm calling real reality. This is God's real reality. This is God's picture of like behind the scenes. This is how things are, what things look like. And there's a couple different facets of this real reality. And the first is what I'm calling real power, real power. Uh, we're introduced to like a dragon, a woman, and a child as the main center point, as the main actors, as the main people that focus on the, where the attention gets, where all the attention goes. And the first I want to talk about is this woman who's clothed with the sun. We're reaching the limits of language. We're trying to explain something that is really almost unable to be fully explained. And it's supposed to be a picture that startles us rather than something we can explain away. And so a woman dressed in the sun, this is brilliant. This is confusing. It's alarming. It's weird. It's jaw-dropping. And there's a moon um, that she is under her feet. And there's these crown of 12 stars. And one of the things that happens in Revelation is there's layered symbolism. And so these 12 stars symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, but then also the 12 disciples of Jesus. And so what's being communicated in this layered way is that this woman is emitting brilliance and purity and that she is connected to the people of God. And she's pregnant with a son. And this son is said to be born to rule. It says he's born with an iron scepter. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 2, which is called a messianic psalm. Now, if you're new to this whole like church and Bible thing, a messianic psalm is something that looks forward into the future and talks about Jesus before he was born. It's one of the most interesting, compelling proofs that Jesus is who he says he is, that things that were written about him hundreds of years before he's born describe him with accuracy. And so in Psalm chapter 2, it talks about one to be born with this iron scepter. This is a shepherd's rod. This is not something used to harm, but it's used to guide. And meaning that his rule will not be broken. His rule will go forward. His guiding shepherd-like rule will not be broken. And then we're introduced to this dragon. Enormous. Seven heads. 
Numbers of seven and 10 symbolize completeness. And so like John, as he's seeing this, he's wanting to convey to these seven churches. Again, John is writing this from like um, right, political exile. And he's getting this glimpse of this, of this reality that God is opening up to him. And he's, he's seeing these seven-headed, um, ten-horned beast. And what's being communicated here is here is one that looks like it has complete intelligence and, and wisdom, seven heads. Here is one that looks like it has complete strength, 10 horns. And here is one that looks like it has complete authority, seven crowns. But while to the outward eye, it looks like it has all this authority, all this wisdom, and all of this power, and even all of this wealth, it ultimately doesn't. And this is where we get the contrast. This beautiful picture and this is, this is important for us to understand. In Revelation 12, is not, it is not the horned, crowned, seven-headed dragon that is powerful. It is a pregnant woman and a child. Oftentimes when you think about power, you probably think about like sky rises, big bank accounts, CEOs, lots of wealth, Lots of the ability, make a, make a decision and people have to respond to you. People have to do what you say because you're in power. And there's this worldly vision of power that is oftentimes connected to the outward appearance of power. And what we see over and over again in scripture is that God has this ability to confound what the world sees as powerful. In the, eye, in the, the, in the words of the King James Version, God's eye is on the sparrow. And also in the words of Sister Act 2. So both feature, double feature there. God's eye is on the sparrow. He chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He goes up to the shepherd boy and says, you are the one fit to be a king. He has his Messiah born in a stable on the outside of town. He has power cloaked and hidden in seemingly powerlessness, which is in contrast to what we often see. This is, from God's perspective, real power that confounds the dragon-type power that is often portrayed all around us as the true power. Now, I want to take a moment to say that what's described here in Revelation 12 is, maybe if you hadn't guessed yet, this is the Christmas story. Here is Mary giving birth to the Christ child. But this is not the Christmas story of the saccharine nativity sets and not as a, even, not even as the Christmas story of Matthew and Luke. This is the Christmas story of John. And Eugene Peterson, an author that I appreciate, says that John wrote his Christmas story so we would never sentimentalize the actual Christmas story. This is the Christmas story where there is a war breaking out, where, where redemption is on the line. It's not a cute away in a manger. There's a war going on. This is the actual Christmas story. And John is giving us so we don't sentimentalize it with, it's a cute baby oh, in a little stable. There is stuff on the line. And it's historically significant, but there is this principle that applies to us. If this is God's portrayal of real power, if God's power confounds the world's power, then often that, that means something for us. It means something for you. If you, never, if you feel unseen, if you walk into this world feeling uh, unseen, unknown, written off by those in power, unnoticed, God has his eyes on you. 
Do not write your story off. Do not write your worth off. Do not write yourself off because God uses the things that the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He calls his kingdom a mustard seed kingdom because it's the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the biggest of plants. This is how God works. God uses our mustard seed faith, our mustard seed lives, our mustard seed skills to you do great things for his kingdom. And this is how he works. This is the Revelation 12 vision of power, that the pregnant woman and the child is stronger than the biggest of dragons. And it also means something for those of us who have power, for those of us who have means. There's this call to always check that, to never get too comfortable with that, to never think you're entitled to that, to see your power as something that is a source of blessing to those outside of you rather than something that can prop up your ego. Revelation 12 calls into question unchecked power and gives worth to the ones that are seemingly powerlessness. There's this example of this in history, so many examples, but I'm thinking of, you know, because it's Juneteenth, admittedly, I'm thinking of like Rosa Parks and her place she played in this kind of civil rights movement that really became out a lot lot of the African-American churches and the prayer movements that began in the churches ended up in the streets as they're calling out for civil rights. Here's Rosa Parks. She's living in this kind of racist situation called uh, Segregation America. And she's in this, which is according to her seat. She's in the seat designated for African-Americans. A white person comes on the bus and says, uh, there's not enough in the Caucasian white spaces. And so the bus driver says, you have to move, speaking to Rosa Parks. She doesn't. She abides by her convictions. And you just look at the scene, freeze frame, look at that for a second. Think about this. Who's going to win? Here's this woman who is marginalized because of her ethnicity in a, in a, in a, with all the powers and legislation against her, but she becomes the catalyst for social change. This is a picture, this is a little glimpse of the Revelation 12 type power at work. But it, it goes beyond just real power that confounds the world's power. It goes into, as we just, uh, look into another glimpse of reality, what I would call real evil. Now, this passage of scripture is a portrait of what some call spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is one of those kind of like, ooh, topics in the church where, you know, we kind of like are trying, a lot of us are trying to figure out what do we believe about it? What do we, um, how do we understand it? Um, as we look at scripture and we talk with others and, but, you know, oftentimes you don't go talking to your coworkers about, hey, what is uh, Satan tempted you recently? Around the water cooler. That's not just kind of a, at least, yeah, maybe you do. I don't know. Tell me how that went if you did. <laughs> Be very interested. Um, But here is this very clear portrait of real personal evil. Let me give this explanation of it because I think we live um, kind of in this tension like just throughout, uh, throughout history. There's these two biases that I would say that each uh, cultures slip into depending on the current age. One is the, uh, the bias or error of scientism. Now, scientism is not science. Science, we love science here. We're pro-science. We think science is great. We think God actually calls us to, to do science because he's given us his creation. So we have to think critically about his creation and do science well. But scientism is the, is the, the marginalizing of reality to, every, to anything you can measure through the scientific method. Scientism reduces reality to something that can fit into a test tube. 
It eclipses mystery. It eclipses spirituality. It reduces everything that, um, to something that can be measured. This is one of the errors. And I would say it's predominant in some circles in our moment right now. But then the other error is what I would call superstition. It's thinking there's a ghost or a leprechaun or a ghoul or a goblin behind every other bush. This is an, another error. And so scripture presents a way forward between the errors of scientism and superstition, which it just describes as reality. Where there is real personal evil and there is a real personal God. And God has made a way for us to be connected with him forever. So we are not at the mercy of real personal evil. Revelation 12 describes this reality. A little bit more on this. I mean, think about just for those of us who maybe have a hard time getting our brain around the idea of real personal spiritual evil. Think about this. Think about all, the, all of the stuff um, that has gone wrong in the last 200 years. Everything from Putin's war in Ukraine right now and the evil expressed there to the tragedies and travesties of World War II or World War I or Pol Pot's Cambodia or whatever, whatever, whatever. Think about that. Now, can you reduce that to mere psychology and sociology? Can you reduce all of the evil in the world to mere psychology and sociology? Scripture says no. Scripture says that's a part of it, but it doesn't explain all of it. So if we're, uh, in the words of Hamlet, there is more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. This is the portrait and it's described in Revelation chapter 12. So if, if evil does like, if, if this is real, then what is the way of evil? How does it operate? What does it do? How does it act? The first, we, uh, we get a glimpse of this in Revelation 12 verse nine, where it says, the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So, there is um, a couple things that we see here. Like, how does he operate? And the first is that he accuses. You see, the word Satan, um, it means, it just simply means accuser. Now, some of us, if you're like a prosecuting attorney, you should continue to accuse. That's your job. You got to do that. It's part of what you do, okay? But if you take accusation out of the law court, it becomes incredibly harmful for humanity, you see, what accusation does is it tries to boil down a person's personhood into the last worst thing they did. So instead of a person that has lied, that person is a liar. It fuses the action with identity. Instead of a person that has cheated, it is a person that is a cheat. You see that how it fuses something that that person has done into something that they are. And when that accusation lands, oftentimes it reinforces the insecurities that are already there. And the person all of a sudden, lots of times, sets out a path for themselves thinking, you're right, that's who I am. I guess that's just who I am. The enemy rejoices. Accusation seeks to boil down a person's personhood into one painful element of who they are. The way forward, we're going to talk about the way of victory more, but the way for, what the enemy is trying to do here with the accusation, he's, he, what he's trying to do, he's trying to keep you from remembering that you are created by God and you're loved by God. If he can take those things out of the equation, he has the power. But if you remember, no, I'm created by God. I'm like, I'm, I bear the image of God. And, and, and I'm loved by God. God's affection is set on me. Then you will keep yourself from slipping into that accusation. Next is he confuses. It, it says in there that 
verse that I read that he, he will lead the whole world astray. He confuses. Now, I used to run cross-country and track. I, used to, I ran in college, and I, you know, I'm skateboarding a lot now, so maybe after my body says I can't skateboard anymore, maybe I'll go back to running. Um, but you know, I, I ran a lot of races, and you know, one of the things like in cross-country, like if you're like, you know, one of the surefire ways that you're not, to not win is to like take the wrong turn on a cross-country race. Has anyone ever done that in any type of race? Just me? Good to know. All right, we got a couple people. So if you, if you take the wrong turn, you know, like all of a sudden you've been led astray and so you're kept from the goal. You're kept from the finish line. You're kept from where you want to go. You're kept from like, like the whole point of why you're doing it in the first place. So if, if, if the enemy, if, if Satan can confuse us and keep us from the direction that we're supposed to go, then we're sure to never get there. This is like the whole point. So this happens on macro levels. Like think about like the corporate level of confusion that we would like think that slavery hundreds of years ago was like normal. How do you get that level of confusion? That's evil. It's this mark of there's been deception. Like how did you, how did anyone ever get to that point? It's terrible. It's hard for us to imagine. This is leading astray, keeping us from the goal. But it happens on personal levels where we convince ourselves that something we know is not good for us is actually something we need. Has anyone ever been there? Don't worry. You don't have to raise your hand. Rhetorical question. Uh, this is how that happens. This third element um, that we see here is that it's abuse. So it's accuse, confuse, and abuse. And Revelation 12, 15, a verse we haven't read yet, talks about the serpent like emitting this, this like water that seeks to knock down the woman and, um, and, and take her out and harm her. And so there's these three things, accuse, confuse, abuse. And I just want to say, like, if any of us feel like the accusation or the confusion, maybe, or even kind of like the harm piece, you know, is something we're wrestling with, there are like these prayer stations on the corners. And during this last song coming up here soon, just I want to invite you to just go pray with someone. The people there are just like have been trained to pray. And like, we believe prayer is powerful and effective. We believe that it's more than just centering and mindfulness, but it's actually we're calling on a good God that seeks to our best in this world. And so just take the humility and courage to go forward for prayer. But, okay, so if that's the way of evil, what is the way of victory? What's the way of victory? Check this out. I love this. And as going on in Revelation 12, 10 through, verses 10 through 12, it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power. Check this out. He's saying in a loud voice. He's announcing it. He's got the megaphone. Now have come the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God, the authority of this Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. I love um, this, this uh, word in verse 11. It says, how did they triumph over him? Did they triumph over him with tanks and guns and defensiveness? They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and, the, and their testimony. How do you find victory? This twofold way. What does it mean by the blood of the lamb? What's being communicated there? Meaning that God did something on our behalf that we could not do for ourselves. So that credit that we could never accrue would transfer freely to us when we could never accomplish it on our own. 
So we often live in this insecurity deficit, trying to climb up the social ladder, trying to prove our religiosity, trying to prove our worth, whether to our superiors, our friends, or our spouse, or anyone else. And there's this constant ladder climbing where we think, maybe I'll get, maybe I'll get, maybe I'll get, and it is futile because we're always going to be one rung away from our sense of completion. And so victory is found in saying, the one who is all became nothing so that I might become his the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've walked into a room and I've like sized people up. Anybody ever done that? Nobody. Good. I'm glad this is incredibly resonant. Thank you. You're welcome, by the way. You know, you, like some, depending on your personality type, you know, you walk into a room and you like, some of us, you know, you look at kind of the people that you know, like you think, you think according to your values or whatever are the cool people or whatever, the, the great people, whatever. And so depending on your personality type, you know, you'll, you'll either like stay away from them because you're intimidated by them or you'll come close to them because you want to be friends with them, right? Or you'll, you'll criticize them because you want to be better than them, right? Anybody ever played this game before? Okay, some honest people in the house. What up? Come on. <laughs> Come on, some honest people, right? I like it. The temptation in life is to play into the enemy's ways by playing the power game according to the world's terms. I'm better than you. I'm less than you, so I'm going to shrink back. The temptation is to assert and prove and overpower and impose, but this unchecked becomes the way of the world and ends with anxiety and stress and insecurity as it always depends on our effort, which is always fickle. We are tempted to leave the way of victory every time we walk into a room and size people up. The way of victory is by second we walk into a space, we know two things, I'm broken, but I'm loved. What Jesus is, he loves me so much that he would take on the brokenness of, of my brokenness so that I might become blessed. And when I walk into a room, like I, I come into a room not to be better than, but to bless them. I come in not, not, not trying to outprove or shrink back or whatever. I come in knowing that, I come in confident and humble knowing that I have been given all that I need. This is the way of victory. Isn't this beautiful? I was reading an article written by a pastor in Northeast Tacoma who uh, we have uh, close affinity with recently, and it was in a national publication um, that we, we love here at Anchor um, called Christianity Today. Um, in this, this article uh, written by this, this pastor that's a friend of Anchor's, um, he talked about, he was contrasting the armor of God and the armor of me, okay? And the armor of God is something that you know, God gives us so that we aren't uh, at the mercy of, of evil and, and, and Satan and all that kind of stuff so that we live with confidence and, and live knowing what to, how to go forward in a broken world. Um, but he, he, this is how he describes the armor of me. And I, it, I could relate to it. And it, it, it was, uh, felt resonant. I have multiple options I go to regularly when I'm in self-preservation mode. Anybody ever been in self-preservation mode? I call it the armor of me which includes the belt of denial, the breastplate of humor, feet ready with the plan of escape, the shield of perfectionism, the helmet of avoidance, and the sword of blame. My armor has many additional elements that God's doesn't offer, such as the shoulder pads of delusion, the face mask of people pleasing, and the shin guards of distraction. If you play according to the armor of me, we will always be at the mercy of the world and the enemy. 
But when we say, it's the blood of the lamb in my testimony, I'm broken and I'm loved, mark my words, you will be bulletproof in a confusing, challenging world. Because nobody can take what God has given from you. Nobody can take your worth from you. Nobody can take your sense of identity from you. Nobody can steal your, your, the fact that you're loved. It's freely given, and it is the source of any lasting confidence. Vulnerability in this way becomes our superpower. Vulnerability is not something we hide so that we can be better than someone else or outprove or, or outpower or impose. Vulnerability becomes our superpower as we freely walk into Monday, we freely walk into this world, we freely walk into wherever, knowing that I'm broken and I'm loved. I'm broken and I'm loved. I'm broken and I'm loved. When the accusation comes, tries to fuse an action in our life into an identity, we could say, oh yeah, you were, I, did, I did struggle there, but you know what? I'm also broken and I'm loved. So it lands and falls flat on the floor and doesn't do the damage that would, it would seek to because I'm broken and I'm loved. And vulnerability here is the ultimate superpower. I love this second piece of uh, victory where it says they did not cling to their life. They did not hold on to their life to the point of even of death. Here's the thing, when you cling on to something, when you cling on to something in your life, it is evidence that you think that makes your life. When you hold on to something in your life, it's the evidence that you think if that thing went, you would also go. And right now, in times of uncertainty, with financial uncertainty, uh, you know, and unprofessional uncertainty maybe, all sorts of uncertainty, it's very easy for us to cling on to something, thinking that, oh, if I just have this, then I'm going to solve the uncertainty problem. But Revelation 12's guidance, the way of victory, is to release and relax your grasp on things that you think will solve the certainty problem or solve the salvation problem in your life and hold to this blood of the lamb testimony. Nothing that is, will come at me will take what is freely given from me. You might even imagine yourself, what's the thing that you're clinging onto, thinking that it will provide that level of security? It might even be a good thing that God has blessed you with. But when you even imagine relaxing your grasp on it, then all of a sudden you become stronger because you recognize, oh, I guess I'm still broken and loved in that situation. I guess I'm just me still there. I guess God's love still meets me wherever I'm at in that situation. And this is the reason why people in situations like that, where something is taken from them and it's very difficult and challenging, that's one of the reasons why those are the places of spiritual power. And maybe you've experienced that. An incredible financial stress, an incredible marital stress, an incredible professional stress. Usually those are the places where God pours out his power because we're coming to terms with the fact that I can't cling on to that thing that I thought brought that level of certainty and I'm having to realize that God is my certainty. This is the way of victory. Blood of the lamb in our testimony, not holding on, what God, uh, not holding on to anything else other than that. And this is what you're invited to. In a space like this, every Sunday, there's different types of people. There's people that are like um, new to this message, and there's people uh, that have been around this message. There's people that have heard it, but never really heard it. And so uh, I would just invite you to, to ask, who are you? And, and what's the response? Is it to kind of just be open to this and be like, okay, um, what, is it, what does it mean for me to think more about this? God, or could you be bringing some of this truth into my life? 
Maybe this is a time where I can say, yeah, God, I want to trust what you've done on my behalf and welcome that love into my life. I'm tired of playing the world's game. Maybe it's a time for you to, to recognize what am I holding on to that, that really is keeping me from a truer, more abundant life. Just ask that question right now and uh, think about it, ponder it. As you do that, I'm going to invite my friend um, Oliver Samara and uh, the worship team up. And uh, there's going to be communion here uh, that you can go forward to. And communion, you're going to hear these words um, if you go forward for communion. And, and all are invited that, uh, that to go forward for communion. And all that's required is saying yes to, that, to this Jesus thing. And you're going to hear uh, words, God's, or Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you. This is a picture of his love that is aimed at you, that reminds us, yeah, broken and loved. And there's prayer stations here that are available for you. Just go, take advantage of prayer. Again, like I mentioned, it's more than just centering mindfulness. Though it is that, it is calling on a holy God that is invested in your well-being. So my friend Oliver is here. Um, You got your mic? Good, great. Hello. Hey, could we welcome Oliver? They don't even know why they're welcoming you. So each week during, uh, during this Revelation teaching series, you know, one of the refrains is throughout Revelation is that all tribes and tongues will be around the one king, okay? That means all different people groups, all different ethnicities, all different types of people, all different languages around the one king, finding unity in him. And uh, so we're, what we're doing is we're inviting friends in the anchor community that uh, speak a different language other than English, whether it's their mother tongue or something that they've learned since in their own development to come and pray over us in that language. And so I'm going to be praying a uh, prayer in English and then we'll be alternating uh, with Oliver. But before we pray, um, Oliver, share us a little bit about your walk with God and, and your journey. Yeah. Um, back in 2004, yeah. um, I... I was invited by my friend to attend a, a church service. Yeah. And um, I've been, me and my family has been uh, attending that for quite some time. And then um, I had a health scare that, that year. And I was hospitalized for like a week, yeah. uh, almost a week. And then they told me that uh, I might have a heart surgery or something like that. Because yeah. my heart is not pumping yeah. blood in my body. Wow. And uh, I might have a pacemaker too. So. Wow. Um, so after uh, at least five, six days, they yeah. sent me home. One day I was uh, at home by myself. Um, I was channel surfing. Uh, that day, I don't know what happened. There's a bunch of uh, church service yeah. on TV. And I ended up uh, watching um, Pastor Stanley of In Touch. And you know, so I watched that service. And towards the end of that service, I uh, I just um, went on my knees and yeah. cried wow. and accepted Christ as awesome. my Savior. Awesome, beautiful. Yeah. And that same following week, I went I went back for my appointment. Yeah. And they told me that uh, my heart normalized. Wow! Come on! Yeah. And Come on! Like like nothing happened. Wow! So I can't believe that you know they were telling me that. Too. Beautiful. So if you missed that, two th- you know, apparently God uses uh, televangelists and still heals. So there we go, guys. <laughs> there we go. But you grew up in the Philippines yes. speaking Tagalog for your, as your main language, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. 
So we're going to pray in English and Tagalog. Yes. So we're going to read these prayers. They're read, but this doesn't mean they're not a prayer because we're reading them. In fact, it becomes in some ways more intentional as there's been thought and, and time invested into this prayer. It's going to be up on the screen. You can read it if you want to, or you can close your eyes and just let the words um, wash over us as, as a community. Um, and I'll be um, reading in, uh, in English again, and, and, and Oliver will be reading in Tagalog. So... Um, to the one that was born in vulnerability, we worship you, for you alone save, and in you there is true power. Sa ipinanganak na may kahirapan o kahinaan, sinasamba ka namin dahil ikaw lamang ang nagdidiktas at nasa iyo ang tunay na kapangyarihan. To the one that became vulnerable on the cross, we worship you, for you have shown us the true way of love. Sa isang naging mahina sa krus, sinasamba ka namin dahil ipinakita mo sa amin ang tunay na paraan ng pag-ibig. Help us to point to you and cling to our testimony when we feel confused or accused. For in you, there is healing and victory. Tulungan mo kaming ituro ka at kumapit sa aming patotoo kapag kami ay nalilito at inaakusahan sapagkat nasa iyo ang kagalingan at tagumpay. To you be praise and honor, God of vulnerability and power. Sa iyo ang papuri at karangalan Diyos na kahinaan at karangalan. Thank you, Oliver. Well, you're welcome to stand and sing this last song and come forward for prayer and communion. Let this space be your space to let your guard down and be real with God.